Please take your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, there's a black Bible in the chair in front of you. Um, You can pull that black Bible out, go to the back, find page 83. They renumber the New Testament, so take that black Bible to find John chapter 12, John 12, page 83 in that black Bible. John 12, 12, 12 through 19, the triumphal entry. We'll just look at that this morning. John 12, 12 through 19, we'll study this. I'll read and then we'll jump in to see what God has to say to us from his word. John 12, verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus finding a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's foe. Uh, These things the disciples did not understand the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of him, and these things were done to him. Verse 17 And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead testified. For this reason also the multitude went out and met him because they heard that he'd done the sign. Therefore the Pharisees said to one another, Look, you see, you're not doing any benefit at all. Look, the world has gone after him. Sometimes I really hate shopping online. We do it out of convenience. It's, it, uh, for those of you like 30, 35 and under, you don't understand what it's like to actually go into a store and try clothes on and then buy it and then come out of the store. You don't understand that. But that used to be a thing, really, really. Do you remember all of you at like 40 and over? Remember you used to do that? You used to go inside a store and try clothes on. Remember that? I'm being facetious here. But that, that's, a, that's a thing of the past, so to speak. Well, I guess some people still do that, but these, the, these young kids, they're just so used to buying stuff online. You know? But uh, we, we do it out of convenience. You know, we have a gift card. You buy something, you get it, and guess what? It doesn't fit. Then you have to send it back. Your expectations are shot. I, I just bought a pair of pants. I had a gift card. Bought a pair of pants. They didn't fit. I had to send them back. There you go. Now, expectations aren't bad necessarily, but they can be. We've talked about this before about expectations. What about our expectations for God? What do we expect from Him? Christians, people who call themselves Christians, expect money, wealth, health, good things to always happen to them from God. And when it doesn't happen, he gets blamed for it. You're supposed to give this to me. But God doesn't work that way. 
perhaps your expectations are wrong. And yet, that expectation from God, money, health, wealth, good things to come, that is the heart, that is the heart of the prosperity gospel preachers. Just click on TBN and you'll see what I mean. Expect God to give you what you want. Not what He wants. Or really, God expects us to have what we want. That's what's told. That's what's preached. We expect circumstances to happen our way, to go our way. People to respond our way. Life isn't like that, is it? And yet, our culture has geared us up to do that and to think that way. So we expect God to act a certain way. But He doesn't quite do the things that we expect Him to do. He doesn't quite do the things we expect Him to do those things. And He may meet those expectations, well, sort of. Not how you expected it to be. And here in John's gospel, his, his, his call is to his readers to come and receive Jesus, believe Jesus, trust Jesus, know Jesus, but know this. Come receive Jesus, and yet it may not be what you're expecting or even wanting. Not what you're expecting or maybe even wanting. This will be good. We're going to dive in to see the expectations that these people had from Jesus and how this affects us in the 21st century. Come receive Jesus, but it's not what you're expecting or maybe not even what you're wanting. Um, I'll put it a different way. Yes, Jesus is the king, but he's not like any other king before him and establishes a very different kingdom than we think. Yes, Jesus is the king. But he's not like any other king that's before him, that was before him. And he establishes a very different kingdom than we think. It's not a kingdom of political power so we can take back the U.S. and have a, a Christian nation. That's not his goal. To have a military that's like this, that's not his goal. He's not that kind of king. He's not a king that's going to entertain you and give you the things that you want. That's not the kind of king that he is. And, and yet, those expectations you'll see from the crowds and from the Pharisees. Unlike the long line of frail, weak, sinful kings of Israel's past, just read First and Second Kings. Ugh. This king is the God-man, God himself, coming to reign over his people. Yet, his throne would be a wooden cross and his lifting up would be to receive shame, not honor. Clink in his commentary was so helpful in this. I give him the credit. 
Jesus' throne would be a wooden cross. And he'd be lifted up not to receive honor, but shame. His glory would be humiliation and service. Jesus, the king, has come to save us, is what Hosanna means. To save us from sin and from death and from hell, God's wrath. And he'd do that by facing shame, suffering, death. Ah, didn't expect those things, did you? Weaknesses to this crowd, shame, suffering, death, those are weaknesses to this crowd, but true strength lies there. True victory, true honor, and true glory, is that's where lies this shame, suffering, and death for Jesus and for those who trust him. This king would bear the shame, defeat, and failure of the cross. As one writer says, quote, Jesus' triumphal entry was for the purpose of defeat and death. Not overpowering and, and destroying and, and defeating Rome. That's not why he was there. This king would bear the shame, defeat, and failure of the cross. But realize, though, the irony and the paradox, because where there was shame, no, is really honor. Where there was defeat, no, there's victory. Where there was failure, no, there actually was success. Because his shame would bring you honor. His defeat would bring you victory. His failure would bring your success. You would be saved. Not necessarily what you expected, is it? Jesus offers you a kingdom, the likes of which you've never seen before because it's unseen, his kingdom. Now believe me, uh, there will be a time where it will merge between the unseen and the seen and he'll reign over this world as the king. He'll reign with an iron scepter. Not now, not yet. No, in this kingdom, your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be washed away. Your life can be changed. So come, and he'll forgive you. Come, he'll wash your sins away. Come, he'll change your life. That's the kingdom he offers you. And when we come to Jesus, he calls us to receive that same kind of glory Shame, humiliation, service. Yet though we face shame and humiliation, we will be exalted just like our Savior and you'll see more of that next week in the passage that we'll look at next week and what, uh, 20 through 36, we'll see that. Today, we're gonna observe three kinds of expectations in the passage. Two from the crowds, one from the Pharisees. And we'll see the ironic twist to each of these three kinds of expectations to help us see that God sort of met those expectations, but in his own way. So let's dive in. Oh, by the way, too, you'll see embedded in the middle the true nature of Jesus' mission. So the first expectation you'll see, first one, number one, 
military slash, I put this together, political expectations from the crowd. They had military and political expectations of Jesus. Verse 12 through 14. Verse 12, on the next day, now, this is Sunday, so uh, from chapter 12, verse 1 through 11, that was Saturday, remember they had that celebration, Mary's like, this is my king, I'm gonna honor my king, I'm gonna pour this uh, huge, wealthy, uh, highly costly amount of oil on his feet, remember she did that, she anointed his feet and wiped it with her hair, this is Saturday, now here it's Sunday, verse 12, Palm Sunday, and by the way, this event is recorded in all four Gospels, Jesus' triumphal entry. But John is the only one who emphasizes these aspects. So the next day, Sunday, the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the palm branches, branches from palm trees, and went out to meet him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now this crowd... These are the ones looking for Jesus because they heard of him raising Lazarus. And it's coupled with along with those who came for the Passover, for this feast. Now, understand, during this Passover time, messianic mania was everywhere. I mean, there's billboards that says, Messiah's coming. You know, they're everywhere, these billboards. Well, they didn't really have billboards, but just pretend they have billboards. They had billboards and all these uh, propaganda type things. Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. So messianic uh, mania was everywhere. People were excited about it. Especially because of all these signs that Jesus was doing. And they were eager to see Jesus having heard of all the legends. Oh, have you heard Jesus resurrected 5,000 people from the dead? No way. You know, they embellished probably. Who knows what they were saying. But the, the real story was here from John. All these legends from Jesus. So what did they do? Verse 13. They got these palm branches. Now, understand. Palm branches are directly related to the Maccabean Revolution. Remember that? Uh, in the 140s B.C., with Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, he sacrificed a pig in the temple. And the Maccabeans, they came, they revolted, and they took back the temple. They took back the land of Israel. And they used palm branches during that time. And then the branches, they came to be regarded as a, a religious and political symbol displaying a victory, authority, Power. So God would come to triumph for his people. They're saying, we need heroes. And so they see Jesus. He's our hero. The people were hoping for ultimate deliverance from the Romans and, and their foreign occupation of, of, our, of our land, of Jewish land. Deliver us now. And waving the branches signaled their nationalistic hope for their hero, their nationalistic hope in Jesus. And notice, it also says in verse 13, they went out to meet him. That word meet, to meet him, it, it means to officially welcome a newly arrived dignitary. So, so this act 
with the palm branches and meeting him had political and royal overtones. So put this together, the palm branches and meeting him, the people herald Jesus as their king. And so you're reading this, you're like, wait, wait, wait a second. Remember John chapter six when the people are gonna make Jesus their king and Jesus is like, no, 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 we're not doing this now. Well, now he's, no, they're doing the same thing. And then they shouted, Hosanna, which means save. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is quoted from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. And, and that psalm is regarded as the king's psalm, celebrating God's kingdom and the king's role as Yahweh's representative, as one writer puts it for us. So they are appealing to Jesus for help. You're our king. Save us. And in this quote of Psalm 118, the, the crowd expressed their hopes and aspirations slash expectations for Jesus, the one who was coming to save his people. They had these political expectations of him. They had these military expectations of him. He's going to come, he's king, and crush these Romans. Yeah, all right, yeah. Jesus is the royal figure in Psalm 118. He's the king. Oh, yes, 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 he would save Oh, yes, 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 he'd conquered, but not how they expected. But yet, look at how Jesus responds. Look at verse 14. And Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it. How did Jesus respond to their acclamation? In short, he embraced it. Wait, what? Yeah, he embraced it. Let me explain to you how he does this. He did it in two ways. First, he found a donkey. Second, he sat on it. Well, that's pretty obvious, right? Well, the, the theory goes that um, Jesus sat on a donkey and so he's rejecting their idea of having him be a king and so he chose a donkey to denote peace. Mm, not necessarily. Now we come to this part embedded in here how Jesus' true nature of this king comes out. This is where we have this point. Jesus, the king of shame. Jesus, the king of shame. So he sat on it. Notice, the quote here comes from Zechariah chapter 9. Just as it is written, verse 15, fear not, no need to fear because of how this king came. He came with power, Daughter of Jerusalem refers to the entire city of Jerusalem. There's no need to fear, and, and fear is a replacement of the quote from Zechariah 9, 9, which actually says rejoice, because John's using other verses which says do not fear. Do not fear. Look, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Now, it's true. Horses became symbols of military power and authority. Thus, uh, some people think what's happening here is Jesus rejected their idea of him being their king and he chose a donkey to denote peace. Mm, no, actually. Sort of. Historical and biblical evidence suggests that a donkey was actually a symbol of royalty. 
A donkey would be mounted by people of high standing like nobility, aristocracy, prophets, royalty, and even deity. A donkey became a symbol of status, prestige, power, wealth, kingship, with someone of high standing riding upon it. So, Jesus sat on a foe, on the foe, communicating that he was that king with authority. I am that king. I am that king with that power. I am that king with authority. He's embracing it. And by the way, the context of Zechariah has nothing to do with the king who humbly comes in peace. You can turn to Zechariah if you want. I'm going to read from that. Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 4. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 4. This is the context. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her, <clears throat> excuse me, and cast her wealth into the sea, and she'll be consumed with fire. Ascalon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will wreathe in great pain. Also Ekron for expectation has been confounded. Moreover the king will perish from Gaza and Ascalon will not be inhabited and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Oh, there's not a lot of peace here, do you think? I don't think there's peace here. Do you think there's peace? No. Uh, no. At verse seven, I will remove their blood from their mouth. Oh, that's very peaceful. And their detestable things from between their teeth. That's even better. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah, Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I've seen with my eyes. Now the quote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foe of a donkey. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Talk about conquering and conquest. Here you see that. The only peace he will bring is by extending his power and authority, defeating his enemies. That's in the context of Zechariah chapter 9. So this king welcomes his people into his kingdom under his rule. He offers them salvation and justice, fighting for his people. He's a just king. Okay, that said, now it's pertinent to see what kind of donkey Jesus rode. Because from Zechariah chapter 9, I kind of pointed it out to you as I was reading, there's three words used for donkey. Colt, excuse me, donkey, colt, foe of a donkey. Three words. And the third word used for donkey would probably most likely be a male purebred donkey which would denote not military conquest and elitism but royalty associated with peace not with war. So see, Jesus is meeting their expectations, but not really. 
I'll put it a different way. Jesus fulfilled this text from Zechariah. He did not reject the crowd's royal greeting. He embraced it, but it would be accepted in his own time by his own way. He'd go to the cross. He would save them from sin, death, and hell. It would be by the blood of the covenant with you. We read that just a few moments ago out loud. Verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 9, As for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the cistern in which there is no water. He's talking about the blood of the covenant that Jesus would go to the cross. Jesus embraced it. He embraced this expectation, but he did it in his own time and by his own way. The nature of his kingship would be that of shame, not war. It would be royal peace with the shedding of his blood, a concept that was not understood until after his death and resurrection. Because notice verse 16. Look at verse 16 now, back to John, chapter 12. John 12, look at verse 16. These things, I'm adding even, even his disciples did not understand the first. Nobody knew what was going on, not even his disciples. The people were correct to see Jesus as a king, but they were unable to see the true nature of his kingship. And that included his own disciples. They didn't get it. Notice. But when Jesus was glorified, ah, after he was glorified, or in other words, after he was raised from the dead, or in other words, after he died on the cross and was raised, then, notice the next part of the verse, then they remember these things were done excuse me, were written of him and these things were done to him. Jesus fulfilled Zechariah 9. That's what they needed to understand, remembered, and that the people did these things to him in fulfillment of that prophecy. But they wouldn't remember until after his shame, his death, his dishonoring, his disgrace, his humiliation, as their king. You know what's clear from the passage today? The whole section, verses 12 through 19. What's clear from this passage today is that only Jesus knew exactly who he was and what was his mission. Only Jesus knew this. Nobody else understood. They all had these expectations of Jesus. Only he knew who he really was and what he was meant to do, which was what? He was the God King who had come to do his kingly duty to die, to face shame. He is the King, but not how you expected him to be. Doesn't God do that to us? God does that. He, he does things and kind of meets our expectations, but kind of doesn't. That's how he does things. Because he does things in his own time, by his own way. 
Not in your time and not definitely not in your way. His throne would be a wooden cross, not a golden throne. He'd be lifted up to receive shame, naked on a cross, not honor. This reminds us of Mary's anointing. Remember, she does the same thing. I mean, for her, she valued Jesus so much that she had this costly ointment. She poured it on his feet and wiped it with her hair. She saw how valuable he was, and yet Jesus says, yeah, that's actually for my burial. It's just who I am, but I'm actually going to die. He does the same thing here. This is what Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the very form of God, did not consider himself equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by becoming a slave, being made in the likeness of men, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God meets our expectations. Well, sort of. Not exactly how you may be expecting, though. In, in actuality, what we see here are the low expectations of the people for their king, and that included his disciples. They actually had low expectations. They really had no clue, which is really sad. It's almost embarrassing what you see. If they only knew. So here you have the, these political military expectations for Jesus, then Jesus, the king of shame, Embedded right here in the middle. And now you have a second expectation that we see. Look at number two. A theatrical expectation from the crowd. Or entertaining. You want to put entertaining expectation. Verse 17. And so the multitude were with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead. Testified. Now, now these are the ones back in chapter 12, verse 9 and verse 11. They came to see Jesus and Lazarus. Whom Jesus rose from the dead. These testified about Jesus because of the sign that he did, not necessarily grasping his identity. And then look at verse 18. And for this reason also the multitude went out and met him. Now these, in verse 18, seem to be the ones in Jerusalem for the Passover who had heard about this sign that he did. In other words, raising Lazarus. So these went out to meet Jesus too. His popularity was growing. This gives further weight to the fact that these people did not grasp the true nature of Jesus' kingship or the true meaning behind the signs. They just wanted to get wowed and see this legendary Jesus. But the signs were meant to point you to Jesus, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, and you must trust him. That was the, that's the point of the signs. Throughout his gospel, John has raised serious doubts to us as his readers that these crowds were truly believing Jesus. And actually, this is going to be confirmed by the words in chapter 12, verse 37. You can look there now. But though he had done so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. You see that? They did not truly believe. They expected to be entertained. They didn't see the signs that were meant to point to Jesus' identity. They just wanted to be wowed. Theatrical expectations. Jesus, entertain us. 
Jesus, do this for us. Jesus, I need you to do this for me. We want Jesus to entertain us, not truly give us what, uh, what we really do need. Mm. Well, you see this political expectation, you see these theatrical expectations. Here's a third one, <clears throat> which is actually, actually kind of ironic. It's actually a true expectation, but anyways. Fame expectation from the Pharisees. Look at verse 19. Therefore the Pharisees said to one another, you see you're not doing any good or no profit or no help at all. So you contrast the clueless, foolish incompetency of the crowd with these religious leaders. And then they say here, look, the whole world is, or the world has gone after him. Now obviously they're speaking hyperbolically. They're kind of exaggerating here. When they said the world has gone after him. Which actually just proved their failure to try and seize and kill Jesus. Now, what do they mean? They meant all in the Jerusalem area, which included all the pilgrims from the Roman Empire. They expected Jesus' fame to spread far and wide and thought it was truly happening. Interesting. We've seen this before. They spoke better than they knew. Ah, we've seen this all over John's Gospel. People speaking better than they know. Because just like Caiaphas, they became like prophets. Because uh, yes, indeed, the world would go after Jesus because Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just of Jews. Ah, we've seen this before. Little did they know that this king would sit on a wooden cross and be lifted up to receive shame. This one who would do this would also do this on behalf of Gentiles, the whole world. Yes, Actually, their expectation was right. The world would go after Jesus. Because he truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. The church, his sheep. God does what we're not expecting or even wanting, maybe. There may be times where he turns your expectations on its head. And this is what you see from the passage. He did exactly this with the crowds. He did this with their political expectations, with their theatrical expectations. I mean, he was doing the signs, but they wanted to be entertained, but he did the signs that they believe. He was a king, yes, I'm here to save, but they wanted him to save them from Rome. I'm famous, oh yeah, he's famous, yeah. The whole world will go after him, yes, Gentiles. Jesus offers a kingdom the likes of which you've never seen before because it's unseen. Your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be washed away. Your life can be changed. If you're here, you don't know the Lord Jesus. Come, repent and trust Christ. He'll forgive you of all your sins. He'll change your life. He'll wash your sins away. He'll give you mercy when you should be judged. Come, he'll save you. And the way he does this, the way he forgives is this way. This king would bear the shame, defeat, and failure of the cross. But remember, his shame means your honor. His defeat means your victory. His failure means your success. Or your sins can be washed away. You can be forgiven and you can be changed. 
unlike the long line of frail, sinful kings of Israel past, this king is God himself coming to reign over his people. Yet, his throne would be a wooden cross and his lifting up would be to receive shame, not honor. His glory would be humiliation and service. And now you're gonna see more of this next week where he's gonna call us, if we're gonna follow Jesus, we need to be ready to receive shame. We need to be ready to receive humiliation. We need to be ready to receive this defeat. We need to be ready for that if we're gonna follow him. Yes, yes, Jesus is the king, but he's not like any other king before him. And he establishes a very different kingdom than we think. Not what we're expecting or maybe even wanting. Let's ask the Lord to work in our hearts from this message, okay? Our Father, we come with expectations of you. And sometimes those expectations may fall in line with your word. Many times they don't. Thank you, Jesus, that when we fall short, that's why you had to die because we have these wrong expectations of you. So help us. Help us to trust you. This is who Jesus is, the King. So help us to trust you, O King, in what you have for us. There may be shame on the horizon. There may be defeat and failure on the horizon, help us to trust you. To know that if there's anyone who understands shame, defeat, and failure, it's you, Jesus. You did that so we can be saved. So you can bring us to the Father. Change our expectations that they may be more in line with your word and help us to trust you when you don't meet the expectations that we have. So take these few moments, if you would, which we encourage you to do this each week. It's like a minute or so. Fill your mind with the truth. Fill your mind with the word. revisit what we've seen from God's word and that your mind will be filled with truth, gospel truth. Let this time be a time between you and the Lord to ponder what we've seen. And then you know, we'll sing, you know, we pray, we do that. But let this be a, a, a special time between you and the Lord where you can reflect upon what we've seen from God's word. Do that now, please.